0: If you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sabine Creek Fellowship, and we're glad that you're with us this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Jonah over the course of the last couple of weeks, and we'll do so for the next couple as well. And the text that we find ourselves in this morning is in Jonah chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 10. But before we do, I'll give you a little bit of a recap in case you've missed where we've been so far. The early portion of the book of Jonah in chapter 1, God comes to Jonah, the prophet of God, and he calls him... Uh, to stand up, to arise and to go to Nineveh and cry out against that city for their evilness and wickedness had risen up before him. And Jonah says, Thanks, but no thanks, God. Right? I, I don't have any desire to go to Nineveh. And so God, Jonah arises and instead of going east to Nineveh, he heads as far uh, west as he possibly can conceive of going toward Tarshish, toward the end of the known world in his mind, as far as he could conceive of getting away from where God was sending him. And so Jonah runs away from the God that calls him, but he also runs away from the image of the God that he created him. In Jonah chapter 4, we see the reason Jonah runs is because he doesn't want to see God be merciful and gracious and compassionate to the people of Nineveh. Jonah's heart isn't merciful and gracious and compassionate, it's calloused, it's hard. And so Jonah runs away from the image of the God that had created him. And in, in, in his running, Jonah finds himself in a storm on a ship out in the sea that he had brought upon himself and upon the sailors who were there aboard with him. God hurls the wind upon the sea, and the further they go and the harder they try, the more the storm rages around them and threatens to sink the boat until Jonah finally says, Listen, he kind of, what we said last week, he cops to being the being that calls for the chaos. Okay, and he says, "Listen, it's 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 me. You got to get rid of me and throw me overboard." And so the sailors finally do. They hurl him into the sea. God hurls the winds upon the sea. They hurl him into the sea, and when they do, the winds calm and the sea quiets, and they worship. And Jonah begins to sink, but God doesn't leave him there. The text tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, he appoints a great fish to come and swallow this prophet who had been running and rebelling against God. And that's where we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As Jonah is in the belly of this great fish that God had appointed, Jonah turns his eyes, he says, several occasions, toward the temple, toward God in prayer. Let's read together in Jonah chapter one or Jonah chapter two, beginning in verse one. If you don't have a copy of the text, it'll be on the screen for you as we read together. Jonah chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, "I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and You heard my voice, for You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas." And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now this book of Jonah, this four chapters tucked away there in the midst of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, it's a book that's all about sin and grace. And when you think about sin and grace, sin very basically, I think it gives us a very beautiful picture of what sin is in our lives. Sin is running from God. It's running from God. Now, most of us raised in the South, if we were raised in a pretty traditional religious environment, we tend to have one singular conception of what it means to run from God. But in reality, there's at least two ways that we run from God. First way that we run from God, and this is what most of us comes to mind whenever we think about running from God. When we think about sin, we typically think about running from God through our unrighteousness. We think about running from God by being very, 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 very bad. Right, by resisting the revealed will of God. and So we see God in the Bible call us to purity and we run away to perversion. Or we see God in the Bible call us uh, to, to, to generosity and we run our way toward greed and self-centeredness. Or we think about uh, the way that God calls us to reconcile in relationships and we run our way toward resentment. We think about sin being us running away from God in our unrighteousness. But Jonah's not running away from God in his unrighteousness, in his perversion. Jonah's running away from God in his self-righteousness. And those of us raised in a very religious culture and a very religious, very religious backgrounds, I think we gotta come to terms with what Jonah does here because I think where many of us find ourselves oftentimes as we are not necessarily running from God in our unrighteousness, but we like Jonah are running from God in our self-righteousness. See, Jonah is running from God not by being very 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 bad but by doing what he thinks is very 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 good and trusting in that. Jonah is running from God by trusting in his own goodness rather than throwing himself upon God's grace. There's at least two ways to run from God, not just one. You can run from God's true through your unrighteousness, but we can also run from God in our self-righteousness. And whether you're running through unrighteousness or whether you're here this morning and you're running from God in your self-righteousness, the result is the same. It's the same. And one of the things that we see in this psalm that's situated right there at the heart of this book as Jonah cries out to God is that whether you're running from God in unrighteousness or particularly in self-righteousness, you wind up finding yourself sinking and every single one of us find ourselves in this position, sinking. I want you to notice in the book of Jonah, it's pretty ironic as uh, the story unfolds for us, is that everything and everyone in the book of Jonah obeys God other than Jonah, Right? everything and everyone obeys other than the prophet who runs away. If you look in the, in the text, you're going to see that, that when God appoints, God calls the wind and hurls the wind, the wind obeys his voice. And the, the sailors obey God at the end of chapter one, whenever they come to repentance and they begin to cry out to God and worship and offer sacrifices, the sailors obey God. God appoints a fish and the fish listens to the voice of its master and comes up and swallows the prophet. You go further on into the book and we'll see this Next week, you see the Ninevites are obeying God. These pagan peoples who have been separated from God's covenant community. Whenever Jonah shows up and finally agrees to do what God had said and go where God had called. And he begins to raise his voice and cry out to the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh repent and the king repents and he comes in sackcloth and ashes and he obeys God. You see, the plant obeys God in Jonah chapter 4. The worm obeys God in Jonah chapter 4. The sun obeys God in Jonah chapter 4. The scorching east wind obeys God in Jonah chapter 4. And the only person throughout the entire book who is continuing to run and continuing to resist is Jonah. It's a great picture for us at times. See, most of us think that running from God are those people who are far from God and far from the church. And they may be, but there are many who are situated in the walls of every church that dots our landscape who are running from God in the same way that Jonah was. Through their self-righteousness and they find themselves sinking beneath the waves. If you look in verse 3, what the text tells us is that Jonah is sinking physically, but that he's also sinking spiritually. In verse 3, Jonah recounts being cast into the deep by God, into the heart of the sea. And he says, the flood was surrounding him and all the waves and swells of God's anger against his sin. They were passing over his head. He says, all your waves and billows passed over me. In verse 5 Jonah says that the water's closed in over him to take his life the deep surrounded him the weeds were wrapped around his head and as he sank to the roots of the mountains Have you ever been swimming in a natural body of water This would be a participatory section of our time together this morning. Many of you have been swimming in a natural body of water before, and as you jump perhaps off of a pontoon boat or off of a blob or off of something into that natural body of water, and you sink down to the bottom of the of of that particular pond or that particular lake. You ever felt the weeds just kind of brush your leg a little bit? The, 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 The grass, the seaweed underneath kind of brush your leg a little bit. For me, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just a little bit of a wuss, but every time that I feel that kind of brush, the bottom of My feet or the my legs, it kind of gives me the heebie jeebies a little bit, right? Whenever you feel that. And Jonah says the weeds were wrapped around his head in order to hold him in this watery grave. In verse 6, Jonah says he sank down to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. And in verse 7, Jonah says his life was fainting away. Jonah recognizes that he is sinking to his death. To his death. He is sinking physically. But Jonah also recognizes he is sinking spiritually. Would you look in verse 4? In verse 4, Jonah realizes that on account of his sin, he has been cast out of God's presence. In verse 4, listen to what Jonah says. He says, then I, I said, I am driven away from your sight. i driven away from your sight. John recognizes there is a consequence to his running and rebelling and his self-righteousness. And that's the fact that he has now created this gulf or this chasm between he and God. Because in rather than throwing himself upon God's grace, he was trusting in his own goodness, in his self-righteousness. And he's running and running and running and running and sinking. The temple, he says, he says in verse 4 as well, Yet I will again look upon, gaze upon, turn my sight toward your temple. The temple was a place of sacrifice, a place where God's grace and God's presence dwelled among his people. And Jonah says, Yet I will again look there one day. I'm not, I can't look there now because of my running and my rebelling and my resisting. So Jonah is sinking physically and spiritually. And every single one of us who run from God, whether through our unrighteousness or through our self-righteousness, we find ourselves in the exact same place. In this self-imposed distress. See, some of us find ourselves sinking. Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself sinking because of your unrighteousness. Of your unrighteousness. Maybe you have run from God and you've, you've distanced yourself from Him by being very, very bad. Some of us are sinking under the weight or the waves of our guilt and our shame. Maybe the guilt of things that we have done or maybe the shame of things that have been done to us. Ways that we were treated, ways that people responded to us or ways that we responded to others. Things that we did ourselves and the guilt of that is passing over our heads. It's like the weeds that are wrapping around our neck to hold us below. Or maybe it's the things that have been done to us and the shame That we feel on account of those things. See, some of us feel like we are sinking right now because we're 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 under the waves and waters of the consequence of our own choices and actions, and things that we've done, things that we've said. But perhaps there's also some of us who are sinking under our own self righteousness. So we're sinking not necessarily under the guilt and shame associated with what we've done or what's been done to us, but we're sinking under the self sufficiency. That's associated with our moral record, of how good we've been. They were kind of propping that up to God and saying, here, look at all the good things that I have done. Or perhaps the pride associated with our social service as we move out to care for other people and love other people. And we just kind of swell up with pride to some degree because we're doing the right things. And we're propping all of that up and holding all of that up to God, saying, "Look, look, look! How good I've been. I'm a good little boy. I'm a good little girl." But in all of that, we find our sinking, self-sinking under our self-sufficiency. And here's why: because as the waves pass over us and that we get sucked further and further below, we never really are sure if we're sinking under the waves of our self-righteousness. We're never really sure. If we've done enough, right? Have I served enough people? Have I given enough? Have I been pure enough? We're never really sure where that line is, where that threshold is, where we've crossed over from uncertainty to certainty. And that's a weight just as much as the guilt and the shame that we feel for things that we've done the pride that weighs us down for the things that we have done and the uncertainty about whether we've done enough because there's two ways to run not just one and once you come to this realization that we are all sinking whether it be under the waves of unrighteousness or be under the waves of self-righteousness what's the solution What's the solution? A couple of things that Jonah gives us, keys us into here is this. And listen, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together this morning. There's two things that Jonah tells us that we've got to do whenever we come to this realization that we are sinking based on the prayer that he prays here in Jonah chapter 2. And the first one is this. When you come to this realization that you're sinking either under the waves of unrighteousness or the waves of self-righteousness is that you have to turn away from vain idols. Turn away from vain idols. Look what Jonah says in verse 8. Jonah says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They forsake it. They forfeit it. And the reality is that you and I, in order, oftentimes whenever we find ourselves sinking, we, like the sailors in chapter 1, in verse 5, we begin to cry out each to our own gods. Each to our own gods, we begin to cry out to them and petition them to save us from our distress. But Jonah's prayer teaches us that there is nothing that these idols that we have erected for ourselves can do for us. In fact, the word vain there in the translation I read to you from literally means this. It literally means empty. In other words, they're without power. They can do nothing. They are impotent idols who can do nothing to relieve our distress. But we turn to them over and over and over and over. Jonah says to pay regard to them in our lives, to build our life and our identity upon them, to present offerings and sacrifices to them, to look to them for significance and purpose, is to forsake the hope of steadfast love. The hope of grace. God's loving kindness. That they are impotent to do anything for us. They cannot deliver us. They cannot save us. They cannot rescue us. They cannot set us free, Jonah says. Now what is an idol? What is an idol? Basically an idol is this, right? An idol is anything or anyone that you look to for blessing or buoyancy. Anything or anyone that you look to for blessing or buoyancy. Martin Luther in his comments on the first commandment in his shorter catechism said this about idols. He says or about worshiping other gods before the true God. He says a God means that, that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. He says anything that you're looking to for blessing in your life, anything that you're looking to for good in your life, anything that you're looking to to define you in your life, anything that you're looking to for identity and meaning and purpose in your life, he says is an idol. Or anything that you're looking to to deliver you, save you or rescue you when times get turbulent and the seas grow rough in your life, wherever you flee then to take refuge is an idol. Something to keep you afloat, buoyancy, right? Something to keep you afloat in the midst of turbulent times is an idol. And anything that you look to to bless you and to find you and to give you hope is an idol. Now, how do you know that you are? Looking to, trusting in, turning toward an idol in the midst of your distress as you sink under the waves of unrighteousness or self-righteousness. A couple of diagnostics I want to drill down into a little bit this morning are these two things. How do you know that you're turning toward an idol? How do you know that you're looking for meaning, purpose, significance, blessing, or buoyancy in anything or anyone other than the true God? There's lots of ways to know. and We could talk about a lot of things this morning, but two of them that I want to give you. Today, first of all, this is that if you're looking to an idol, if you're looking to something else other than the true God for blessing or buoyancy in your life, is that they will never contradict you. Your idol will never contradict you. Now listen, I want you to notice something. Jonah is not when Jonah runs away from God in his own self righteousness. Jonah is, doesn't have a bunch of statues that he packs in his backpack and hauls them on board of the boat with him because he's carrying around all these little idols. What Jonah has, rather, what Jonah has rather is a, a, a skewed perception, perhaps, of who God is or who he wants God to be. And what we see in the text is that one of the ways that you know Jonah has a real relationship with the true God is because what we see oftentimes is whenever we have a real relationship with the true God, is that the true God, the word of the true God, contradicts the will of his people. Oftentimes. One of the ways you know you have a relationship with the true God is because he's contradicting you. In 1972, a book was written, there's a fictional account of, of, uh, called The Stepford Wives. Some of you might be familiar with it. It was made into a movie in 1975, again in 2004. Uh, They just couldn't get enough of it, right? So The Stepford Wives. Stepford was a fictional suburb of uh, a town, a fictional Connecticut town. Um, And so um, what had happened is his family moves into Stepford, Connecticut. And when they get into Stepford, Connecticut, they begin to realize things in this little quaint town aren't all... What they, typically, what they seem to be. Because what had happened in Stepford, Connecticut is that the men, all the men in Stepford, Stepford Connecticut, in an attempt to find their perfect bride, right, they had conceived uh, of creating these women, uh, these robotic women who would basically serve their every need, every whim, or every wish. They would never complain. They would never argue. They would never tell you you got home too late. They would never tell you that you're not doing enough around the house. They would never contradict them whatsoever. And so this family moves into town. And I begin to notice that things in those relationships just don't seem to be the way that they are accustomed to having experienced relationships. And I begin as the story unfolds. I begin to realize what's going on there is that there's, these are not real relationships. These are very robotic types of relationships because what these men had done is they had basically formed and fashioned these wives out in, of, of, into their own image, into their own likeness. So they would never contradict them. They would never complain. They would never confront them. They would always be subservient and servile. And one of the ways that you know that you are turning to an idol for significance, for blessing or buoyancy in your life is that that idol or that God never contradicts you. There's never conviction that you experience. That's one of the prime indicators that you are not worshiping the God in whose image that you were created, but rather you are worshiping a God that you have fashioned in your own image. They never contradict you. Everything's always good. They're good with every decision you ever make in life. They're good with any choice that you ever determine to make. In fact, Jonathan Edwards um, said it this way. uh, uh, He said, Self-love through the exercise of a mere natural gratitude may be the foundation of a sort of love to God in many ways. A kind of love may arise from a false notion of God that men have some way imbibed. And that word imbibed is an old English word. It means you drank it, you sucked it down. Okay? As though he were only goodness and mercy and not revenging justice. Or as though the exercises of his goodness were necessary and not free and sovereign. Or as though his goodness were dependent upon what is in them, as it were constrained by them. In other words, God was obligated and owed them something because they had been so good. Or they see God as only being mercy and not justice, only love and not anger. Because not God never contradicts them. He says men on such grounds as these may love a God of their own forming in their imaginations when they are far from loving a God as he reigns in heaven. Edward says, there are some of us who have step for gods. One of the ways you know that you have a step for God is because they never contradict you, they never bring conviction. Their word always aligns with your will and what you want. So for instance, if your God is okay with you, like Jonah, keeping your distance from those people, you're worshiping a God of your own image. If your God always supports your lifestyle choices, you're worshiping a God of your own image. If your God is open to and affirming of your chosen sexual orientation, you're worshiping a God of your own making. If your God, on the flip side of the coin, rubber stamps your bigotry, racism, sexism, classism, or your feelings of superiority because of your heterosexuality, you're worshiping a God of your own image. your own making. If your God's agreeable with your hatred of your enemies, you're worshiping a God of your own making. If your God is good with you, just having a personal relationship with him while you neglect the bride for which he has died, you're worshiping a God of your own making. If your God is okay with your highest pursuit in this life, being happiness outside of him at the expense of anything or anyone, you are worshiping a God of your own making. If your God says to you over and over and over again, or if you believe that your god, that the essence of who your God is is someone who exists to make you healthy and wealthy, you're worshiping a God of your own making, someone who's been formed into your image and likeness. If your God says things like, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in that belief, you're worshiping a God of your own making. See, if your God never contradicts you, if He never contradicts your unrighteousness, if He never contradicts your self-righteousness, you're worshiping a God of your own making. One way you know that you're worshiping the true God is that there are times where His Word cuts across the grain of your will in ways that make you uncomfortable. Secondly, 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 the way that you know that you're worshiping a God of your own image, a step for God, so to speak, that you're looking to someone or something other than the true God for buoyancy or blessing in life, is that they demand everything, these gods, and they deliver nothing. They demand everything and deliver nothing. Look in verse 8. It teaches us that these impotent idols, they offer no mercy. Because Jonah says, If you forsake the true God, if you forsake Right, The true God for these vain idols and you've forsaken any hope of God's loving kindness, of his mercy in your life. And whenever you turn from the true God to worship false gods and you look to anything other than him for buoyancy or blessing in life, you can give it everything and it will never be enough to please them or to assure you that you found favor. They cannot bless you and they cannot give you buoyancy. I demand everything to deliver nothing. Listen, I'll go ahead and be a little transparent with you this morning. Right? One of my idols, one of the things that I look to at times in my life for blessing and buoyancy is the idol of my performance. Of my performance. And I didn't realize that I was still wrestling with that idol until this, very, this, this last week. Had a chance with our staff and elders to go to a, um, a conference down at Watermark Church in Dallas, the Right Now Conference, and there was a particular speaker there um, who, if I told you his name, many of you would know who he is, the books that he's written. Uh, you'd be very familiar with his ministries. He's a well known author, speaker, and pastor. Well, I've always kind of had a little bit of a, I don't, a distaste in my mouth for this guy, and it's never been anything about his ministry necessarily. And I can never really put my finger on why I felt the way that I did towards him. Until this week, whenever he stepped and delivered the message, which was really incredibly convicting, incredibly inspiring, and I started to think back. On my A couple of years ago, I was invited to go speak um, at a camp down in south Louisiana. And so I traveled down there. A buddy of mine asked me to come and and preach to these students who were going to be there that week. And so I showed up and spent the whole week with them. And the very first night, I rolled up, and I stood on the platform, and I preached. Uh, And afterwards, I was hanging out with uh, the buddy of mine that invited me and then a couple of other youth pastors who were key in in kind of putting the camp on. And so I'm standing there around in that circle with them. And one of the other youth pastors... in my presence, okay, looks to the other guys who are standing around him and he goes, Hey, listen, next year I know exactly who we need to come and speak at this camp. It's this guy, right? And he gave the name of this guy. Um, and he said, Listen, this guy is amazing. He is phenomenal. He's one of the best pastors, preachers, speakers you could possibly ever Here in your life. And he goes on to say, Listen, if we had this guy come to our camp next year, our attendance would go from like 300 kids, there'd be 3,000 kids. It'd be busting out of the seams. And like a thousand of those kids would get saved. And a thousand of those kids would get called to vocational ministry. And a thousand of those kids would commit to themselves to go to the mission field. And they would all return home, right? They would all return home to their parents and they would rise up and call all of them blessed. And he said the raccoons will come out of the woods to sing the praises of God and they'll all get saved. And they'll stop ravaging the dumpsters and repent of that. He goes on and on and on about this guy who they need to come preach at their camp because if he came preach at their camp, their camp would be put on the map. And he turns to me and he goes, no offense. (laughs) Thanks. Appreciate that. And so ever since that time, ever since that time, I've always had somewhat of a distaste in my mouth for this guy, and I never realized why it was until this week. It's because what had happened in that encounter is that that idol of performance for me got pressed. So I spent the rest of the week trying to impress All of them with my articulation and knowledge of the scriptures. Because I have this idol of performance that when I stand up in front of people, I want them to like me. I want them to think that I'm smart. I know they don't think that I'm very funny, but I at least want them to think that I'm insightful. (laughs) This guy knows the Bible. This guy loves Jesus. He's able to communicate. I want to perform like a little monkey with clanging cymbals. And some of you go, man, are you that messed up? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. That messed up. But so are you. We all are. Because we look to other things than the true God for blessing or buoyancy in life. Some of you have that idol of performance. Whenever people push on that, it's devastating to you. You might have an idol of control. And so whenever you feel like you're losing control, you erupt in unrighteous anger. Why? Because you want to be in control. You want to have the reins in your hands. You might have an idol of success. And so whenever things begin to go poorly in life, it's not just disappointing, but it drives you into despair and depression. These idols, they demand everything, but they can deliver nothing. And no matter how well I perform one week, the next week, if it doesn't match up to where I was the previous week, Then I leave and I go home and I'm beating myself up because I'm my own worst critic when it comes to the idol of performance. I, I know where some of my idols are, I don't know where all of them are. <laughs> where are yours? Jonah says they cannot deliver you, they cannot save you, they have no mercy. So rather than turning toward vain idols, what does Jonah do? Listen to what he does. Rather than turning toward vain idols, he turns toward God, the true God, who had contradicted him when God's word came. It contradicted his will, and yet he knows that's the only place that he can look to find deliverance, to be rescued. In verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2, the text tells us, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried to you, and you heard my voice. Jonah says in verse 1 that he, God heard his voice and answered him. In verse 4 he says that he is confident that one day he will once again look toward his holy temple where God's presence dwelt. In verse 6 Jonah says that God brought his life up from the pit, because Jonah turns to God And he stops trusting in his goodness, but he throws himself upon God's grace. John realizes there's no goodness in me that can swim to the top of the waves. There's not enough goodness in me to save myself, but there is enough grace in him to rescue me. So he calls out to him, and God answers that call. There's a couple of reasons why some of us might refuse to call out to God. First, some of us refuse to call out to God because we are the cause of our chaos. We go, can I can I really? I created this mess around me with my own choices. Can I really call out to God and have Him hear me in the midst of my distress? And the message of Jonah is a resounding yes. Listen, your greed, your Lust, your gossip, your unrighteous anger, your indifference, your passivity, your impurity may be the cause of the mess and the chaos that you are in right now. But Jonah says the message of Jonah is even if you're the cause of your own distress, God is able to rescue, God is able to deliver. Another reason some of us might not call out to God and refuse is because we want to be our own saviors and masters. Because if we can save ourselves, then we can call the shots. If we're sufficient enough, then we get to determine the direction for our life. But what Jonah teaches us is that none of us, none of us are able to save ourselves. Because Jonah comes to the end of the Psalm in verse nine. And listen to what he says. I'm sorry, in in verse, yeah, in verse nine, and Jonah says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's of him. I'm not good enough, and I haven't been too bad. Because salvation belongs to God and God alone. If you notice in the book, God saves the sailors out of the storm. God saves Jonah with the fish and from his belly. God saves the Ninevites. In fact, this verse in Jonah chapter 9, one commentator says, this is the theme of the entire book and the theme of the entire Bible. The Bible is not just a collection of stories to tell you how to live, but a collection of stories to show you that you cannot live that way and that you need someone to rescue you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, it's of Him, it's not of you. It's the theme of the entire Bible. In fact, in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, the apostle Paul writes this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were all sinking, he says, dead. There's a big but in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And one of the things that you and I have to come to terms with this morning is this, is that you are not sufficient to save yourself. Particularly those of us growing up in this culture, who have trusted in our goodness as opposed to throwing ourselves upon God's grace, you have to come to the recognition that you are not sufficient to save yourself. Because you're dead. But God being rich in mercy. There's nothing that you can do to atone for your own sin. It has to be atoned for by another. Listen. I'll close with this. And several years ago, I think it was in 2008, uh, the movie Seven Pounds was released as a movie starring Will Smith. And in that movie, uh, Will Smith makes a decision in seconds that would rob seven people of their lives. He's driving down the road and decides to send a text while he's driving, crosses the midline, causes a a massive pileup of vehicles that claim the lives of seven people he survives. His fiance dies along with six others. So he determines that he's going to spend the rest of his life trying to atone for his own sin, for his own mistake, for his own failure. And so what does he do? He donates a portion of his liver to one man. Donates a kidney to someone else. He, he provides a home for another individual. He's going to spend the rest of his life radically altering the, the futures of seven people because he robbed seven people of their lives. He's going to change the lives of seven people. And the movie ends... With him crawling into a bathtub, putting a box of jellyfish, which is one of the most deadly animals in all the world, into the bathtub with him that would wrap around him and kill him so that his eyes could be donated to a blind man and his heart could be donated to a woman who had several weeks left to live without a heart transplant. And so his attempt to atone for his own sin, it cost him his life. It cost him everything. Everything. But the truth of the Bible is that you can either spend your entire life in your self righteousness, trusting in your goodness, rather than throwing yourself at the grace of God, and it will, you can either pay for your sin with your own life, or you can look to the one who is rich in mercy and see that he has paid for your sin with the life of another, a substitute. who would live and die in your place so that you would turn from vain idols. Because when you see that your sin has been atoned for by another and you don't have to do it yourself, you know what that does? It begins to loosen the death grip that performance has on your heart. And it begins to loosen the death grip that success or career or children have on your heart. Because in that you see the steadfast love of God. That while you were sinking, his hand plunged beneath the waves and it ripped you back up above them. my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that our congregation will be filled with men and women who see the steadfast love of God in their own lives. Who turn away from vain idols to worship the true God even when He contradicts them. Because He's the only one. The only one who can deliver. Let's pray together. Father, we come today giving you thanks for your mercy and kindness, that your steadfast love, as the psalmist says, is indeed better than life. And for those in the room this morning who have been running away from you through their unrighteousness, Father, I pray. I pray that they would see the folly of their running, of their resistance. And that the truth that only you can save, stave off their despair, feeling like they have to atone for their own sin. Because of all their unrighteousness as they live under the weight of guilt or of shame, they recognize they don't have to atone for their own sin, but another has atoned for it. And His name is Jesus. And for those of us, (laughs) for those of us who in our pride think that our goodness can be exchanged for your grace. I pray that the truth that only you can save would set us free from our self-righteousness. Father, as we declare in these next moments that only you are mighty to save, that you would help us to think well and as we think well that it would stir the, 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 the coals of our heart to love with great affection towards you as we remember that salvation belongs to you.